Kia from your Every Nation Southside family here in Papatoitoi, Auckland. You are now listening to a podcast from our church service and we pray that you will be blessed by it. For more information, please visit our Facebook page or feel free to contact our church office. Uh, the focus of, you know, let's get into it. The focus of this sermon here uh, series is to help you and I um, understand that God's amazing grace is far greater than our sin. And in the first month of 2020, I pray that we will find, you know, a, a deeper appreciation, a new level of trust, and most importantly, to be able to respond in a Christ-like way to this thing called grace offered by Jesus for our lives. And also, no, when I refer to speaking about you in this sermon today or you in the sermons that are coming in the next few weeks, I'm speaking first and foremost to my own personal life. Um, you know, it's a five-week series or six-week as I was saying, but um, the first week I had, a, I had a real difficult time trying to prepare the message because it was really speaking to me. Um, you know, in my early years, I used to think, okay, what does the church need to know today? You know, and I'd look out into the crowd. Yes, this word is for that person. You know, um, and I always used to come and prepare my messages thinking that I needed to do something for you. While I've learned over the years that I don't, you know, you prepare messages for yourself first, let God convict you so you can repent of anything. And then that way I'm able to share um, what has been downloaded to me in my personal convictions. And so that's how I've always tackled the way that I prepare my sermons. And when I say it's a hard sermon to prepare, that's the reason. <laughs> I can pull out all the theological um, topics and all the, the Hebrew and Greek um, you know, terms and all these different kind of words if I wanted to. But um, I wouldn't understand it myself, so <laughs> I'm not going to try. And so just know that I'm speaking first and foremost to my own personal life, and I dare not try make this sermon about others before being convicted myself to change. So I just want to, you know, bring that to the table this morning. And last week, you know, week one of the sermon series, we started by asking ourselves uh, this question. What does grace look like and mean to your life this year? What does grace look like and mean to your life this year? And we broke down the idea of what grace means according to what the Bible teaches on, you know, in, in the Word. And many of us know and have heard this word uh, grace, right? It's talked about or mentioned from time to time in our daily lives. But the meaning of this word can still be unclear uh, to some of us based off how the Bible explains it. And if you were here last week, I shared a basic definition of the word grace, which means this, to be given something uh, freely and generously with no strings attached. And today, I would like to share how God's amazing grace can give us justice. And what is the, the best way to explain this? Well, straight away, I thought of the comic book and made into a movie, uh, Justice League, and who are a group of superheroes, 
Uh, you got Batman, you got Wonder Woman, you got Aqu- Aquaman, Cyborg, The Flash. Um, and they come together to bring back a unity of order, of fairness, of peace and equality into the world because the world is about to be corrupted against an evil enemy and, and a supervillain known as uh, Stephen Wolf. Their purpose is to just bring, uh, to bring justice to the world. And when I think about today's sermon on how God's amazing grace can give us justice, I would like to show you through Scripture and what that looks like and how it applies to our life today. And to begin, we will be looking at the book in the New Testament called Titus. Now, the the book of Titus, once again, is a letter. It's a letter written by the well-known follower of Jesus named Paul. And last week I shared, um, you know, how his name was Saul, but when he, well, you know, later on he changed his name uh, to his Roman name, which was Paul. And I shared how Paul in his young adult life, he was a devout Pharisee. A Pharisee was a advocate in following the laws of Moses and the cultural and religious traditions of Israel. So Paul, the Pharisee, would go out and persecute and arrest any person who were Jews, and they followed the ways of Jesus and his teachings. And he would arrest his very own people because they were becoming converts of this new radical Jesus movement, going against the laws of Moses and the religious traditions of Israel that their very culture was all about. But then one day, he has... Uh, this radical encounter with the risen Jesus. And long story short, Jesus then sends Paul out to become this new advocate for Jesus. And he is sent out to share about Jesus to people who were outside of his very own Israelite culture and Israelite people. He becomes the very first advocate for Jesus to the pagan world, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. And as Paul travels, proclaiming Jesus to the non-Jewish world, he meets a, a young Greek man named Titus, who becomes a follower of Jesus eventually, and, is trust, and becomes a trustworthy companion to Paul. And it is this letter titled uh, Titus, we learn about this young man and how Paul has assigned Titus to go to one of the Greek islands called the island of Crete. And his job was to visit all the house churches that had been developed there over the years to bring order back to those churches. You see, the thing about the island Crete was these Cretans were known to be notorious for corruption and all types of violence, greed, and the cities on this island were known to be unsafe to live in. And this was the whole purpose for Paul to plant house churches on this island because it was known for his har- uh, for its harbors that served to all the known world in that history of time. And so Paul strategically planted churches there because of the influence of people sailing in and out and passing through that island. 
And over time, as the churches grew in Crete, there also came, you know, a, a few corrupt leaders, corrupt leaders that lived on the island who claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they were actually ruining the church's name and the, and the representation of Jesus. And that is why Paul, he sends Titus, he sends Titus to clean up the place and bring order and justice back into the church. Now, when you read the whole letter of Titus, it is a letter that Paul has written directly to his disciple, Titus, with instructions of what he needs to do while he's on this island. And this letter is said to be, you know, it's a straightforward letter with instructions, and it's a short letter. However, just like last week's sermon, I am not going to read the whole letter, but I'm going to look at a short snippet of the letter. And the part I'm going to focus on is the ending of Paul's letter and his final instructions and encouraging words to Titus. So we're going to pick it up here at Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read just the three verses, okay, this, this little snippet of the letter. And this is what it says, Paul writing uh, to Titus and to the church, and he says this, remind the people, this is the church, the church, the churches of Crete, remind the people to respect the rulers and authorities, to be obedient Always be ready to do whatever is good. Do not slander no one, but be peaceful and considerate. God's people must always be gentle toward everyone. Remember, it wasn't so long ago you too were foolish. You were disobedient. You deceived and enslaved and by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And we lived in bitterness and envy, being hated and hating one another. You know, the, the whole point of reminding the Cretans in the church there, in this part of the letter, was because they were representing a community you know, of people who, who were Jesus followers, living just and trustworthy lives as citizens in a corrupt place. And what may then have been a hard thing, right, which Paul was asking of the churches in Crete to do, was to submit to the leaders and the government of Crete who were far from Christian. <laughs> and this would have been a difficult thing to do for the Christian Cretans because it meant they needed to, you know, uh, differentiate how to submit to authority, and at the same time, how to resist the pagan culture they grew up in. And so even as followers of Jesus today in our life, it isn't easy. And often tension arises because parts of our government and, and the culture surrounding us and the culture you and I probably grew up in can at times cause friction to the Christian values you and I aim to live by. You know, there was this time when our family went out to a birthday celebration, and it was of an older person, and their birthday was celebrated at this real nice restaurant um, in, a, in a prominent part of Auckland. 
And so the prices of the menu was the price of my, fel- you know, my family's week grocery shopping, literally. And those are the celebrations, right? Hey, you, you don't want to turn up to because you can't afford what's on the menu. Unless it's all paid for, right? And so, you know, I was blessed you know, to, to be able to go because it was paid for. Um, and it was a very nice place. Anyway, halfway through the night, the birthday person, they stand up, they walk around all the tables, and they're pouring alcohol into everyone's glasses. Obviously not, not with the kids. It wasn't a huge group of us. And they were pouring, you know, alcohol into the glasses, some wine, um, some very rich wine, into all the adults' glasses, right? And the majority of our party goers, man, they were already hammered. They were hammered by this time, including the birthday person. Now, our dear birthday friend, they know, they know myself and Weens, we are those types of Christians who don't drink alcohol. <laughs> yep, we're old school, man. We're old school. We're an old school type of Christians that don't drink. And being an important celebration for this birthday person, they came by and they pour alcohol into my glass and they say to me, Taulu, look. Uh, well, not Taulu, look, you know, <laughs> those versions. Um, you all know me. You know, Taulu, look, I know you don't drink alcohol, but this is my special day. And I only live this age once. So the best birthday present, and breathing all over me, you could give me is to have one glass to celebrate my day with everyone. And then the birthday person carries on to the next table, pouring alcohol into other people's glasses and so forth. This is saying, I always, I always heard my son say last year when he's around his friends from school, and they're just two words, and the words are, never fold, <laughs> never fold. <laughs> All his boys, never fold, and I'm not going to cry, never fold, never fold. <laughs> now, every time I would hear them say this to each other, never fold, and by never folding... <laughs> means they are standing their ground to not fold against whatever situation they're choosing to resist against or be tempted by. Well, I have to be honest with you, this was not one of those moments for me. You see, I didn't feel pressured. I didn't feel pressured by this dear friend of mine if I didn't drink the glass or alcohol put in front of me. And when it came around to raising our glasses to celebrate, you know, all the adults there were watching to see what me and Weens would do. And the thing was, you know, and all me and Weens did, we would look at each other because we were actually sitting, sitting on different tables and we'd just look at each other like this. And we were sitting on different tables, and, and without any hesitation, my wife picks up the beer matrix. <laughs> you know, without any hesitation, we filled some other glasses with water and raised that on their behalf. The thing was, we never felt the urge or pressure to drink that glass of alcohol because. We wanted to be representatives of making good, good judgment as citizens of God. We wanted to be trustworthy followers of Jesus for the choice we made in front of our sons 
who were there sit, sitting at the table, seeing this all play out. And I actually asked them after the birthday about what they saw, and they thought, you know, man, you were mum, you were ruthless. Everyone was watching you. <laughs> ruthless for going against the wishes of our birthday friend. And we also wanted to be examples to our very friends who were watching us. They were already hammered from their drinks. And to be very honest, I was, I was proud. I was proud to be doing this as a representative of, for our church, Every Nation Southside. There, the thing was, there weren't any Every Nation Southside members, any of you there. There were none at this party. And me and Weens were the only Christians actually probably in there as well. And so where it mattered most for me, I wasn't afraid to justify and represent Jesus amongst people that I love and, and people that I respect being around, even if they weren't going to be happy with what I chose to do that day. When I was a new Christian, they're a whole different story, right? It's a journey that you walk. But today, that never fold doesn't register in my head in certain situations when I'm having to face. And Paul reminds us in this part of the letter that I just read, remember, it wasn't so long ago you too were foolish. You were disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. As followers of Jesus, we know and understand the cultures and societies that we all live amongst. And our family and our friends who do not follow Jesus the way you and I do, I'm sure, right, in the past, or maybe not long ago, many of us may have engaged in, in ungodly, disobedient behaviors that our non-believing friends displayed. And I sympathize with them, my non-believing friends and family, because I remember what it was like to live a corrupt life in the past. Now, am I a perfect Christian today? Far from it. But now, for 2020, it is our purpose to model behaviors that are consistent with our faith in ways that will attract family and friends to Jesus into an amazing community like this place. Rather than forcing them away because they don't see anything, anything different that you do in front of them that is any different to the way they live their lives. They already have to fake, you know, they, they already, sorry, have too many fake Christians who live and talk like them and then see them waste their Sunday mornings going to church trying to be somebody different. The thing is, are you one of those fake Christians in their life? And coming back to our letter, Paul, Paul's overall concern in this letter is for the churches in Crete to be good witnesses to their unbelieving society. Not only were they to live out Christian beliefs, but they also needed to live out correct behaviors to match those Christian beliefs. You know, today, many Christians don't learn or they don't choose or they don't understand 
to live this way. And let me expand on what I'm trying to say here. I know there are many people who are just cultural Christians. What is a cultural Christian? A cultural Christian is a person who goes to church from time to time because it's a nice thing to do. It makes them feel good. They claim to believe in Jesus as their Savior, but He's not really their Lord. They don't let Jesus control the use of time and money and resources. They keep Him stashed away in a drawer of their life and pull Him out whenever they feel the need. And other things dominate their daily lives. Serving him is just, it's not a priority. And so the Christian beliefs, they are there. But the correct behavior is what lacks in their lives. And this is what a cultural Christian is. And that type of Christian does not give any justice to the amazing grace God offers to unbelievers that are watching them. And so what is Paul trying to tell the church of Crete to be like? Well, Paul is telling the churches in Crete to engage in the ways of Jesus and live out good deeds within their society. Of all people, Christians should be known to be the ideal citizens. And this was a very different style of living for the Cretans because they never grew up in this way. So for them, it was easier said than done. How were they supposed to sustain this counter-cultural Christian way of life? Well, the answer to that question is found in the next part of Paul's letter. In verse 4, it says this, and onwards, When the kind and loving Savior appeared, that's Jesus, he saved us. Not because of any righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. And God poured out onto us generously through Jesus. And so that we can be justified by his grace and also become heirs of the hope of eternal life. These verses are pretty much a short version of the gospel story. God's kindness and love is what saves us. And through the Holy Spirit, God is able to wash and rebirth and renew people. And through Jesus, he has provided a way for people to be declared righteous before him and justified because of his grace. And these very things open up an opportunity of eternal life. And Paul is teaching as each follower of Jesus on the island of Crete step out in faith and choose to live in this way, it, it produces a new kind of person. The kind of person the Cretans could never become on their own. But they become this new kind of person only by choosing to be a spirit-empowered type of person by faithfully following the teachings of Jesus. That is what will bring God's justified grace to the island of Crete and beyond. Not only does it stop there, but as people outside the church walls, they watch the church unified in justified grace, 
And it brings honor to God and credibility to being a community of Christians that live amongst their non-believing friends and family. I was blessed this past week to uh, be able to buy a, a new computer for work. And so I went to Melissa. Where's Melissa? There. She's over there. I'm going to put her on the spot. And if you don't know Melissa, um, she's a volunteer of our worship team and volunteers in the welcoming team. And I had to ask, you know, I asked Weens to, to go into Melissa's job out in Mount Roscoe, Harvey Norman, to, to grab my, my new work laptop that I was able to buy. And when Weens, you know, she came back to the office here with my new computer, my toy, and started, you know, setting up. She mentioned to me as she was waiting for the computer at Melissa's office, she was able to cap, catch a glimpse of how much respect Melissa has in her work environment and how her work colleagues look up to her. And if you know Melissa, I think she is one of the most humble people that I know that serves tirelessly here at, at uh, you know, church most Sundays. And what blesses me even more, though, it is so good to know her humility doesn't only represent itself here in church, but it also overflows outside of these church walls into the different cultural environments and communities that she is part of on a weekly basis. And I look around this room and I can say the same to a lot of you. I always hear good news when, when some of your names pop up. Ah, oh, yeah, so onto it. Man, that guy, that girl, man, they are so onto it. And then sometimes they don't know that you're Christian, and then, oh, yeah, they go to church. They go to your church. What? They go to church? Wow, yeah, that makes sense. Isn't that a good report about you? Rather than, really? Hmm. <laughs> they go to church. Which club is that in the city? Letanoa? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, um, where was I? <laughs> when, when we... When we live out our good deeds as followers of Jesus, you know, it encourages and builds us um, up, you know, builds you and I who, who are part of the church that are on this journey as well. And you need to remember when we live out our good deeds, it is often the platform that opens the door to, to proclaim to non-believers about the justified grace of God who came in a form of a human to be the Savior to all that believe in Him. You know, this small part of Paul's letter of instructions to the churches in Crete is a gracious reminder of how the church needed to be witnesses in the community they lived in. This letter is relevant for us today because we too, we live amongst a culture that exalts sin and looks down on God. What our perverted, sinful society needs is the gospel, the only thing that can change human hearts. But how do we gain a hearing for the gospel among people who mock God and his people in front of you? Paul's answer is that we must live godly lives in this evil world. We need to excel in good works that display God's grace through us. 
Your changed life as a believer in Jesus is key to providing a platform to become a verbal witness that points non-believers to God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to keep being reminded of how God's grace changed us. When you are reminded on a regular basis of God's justified grace that changed your life, I guarantee you it will motivate you to show His justified grace to others through your good deeds. And as I finish, let me read you something that I heard a pastor share. Okay? And I hope this sort of, as I sum it up here, and this is what uh, he, he says in, in one of his sermons. If you received mercy when you deserved judgment, then show God's kindness and love, love and mercy to unbelievers who don't deserve it. But you're thinking, but he wronged me. Well, you wronged God, but how did he treat you? He showed you mercy. Show mercy to the unbeliever who wrongs you, but she maligned me. You once maligned God, who was perfectly good, but he still showed you kindness and grace. Rather than getting even, show kindness and grace to that person who maligned you, but she doesn't deserve it, and neither did you. Paul gives us the gracious reminder that God has shown us great mercy, and in light of that, Show God's mercy to a lost, rebellious world by your, um, by your godly behavior and good deeds.